Are you eager to learn more about law? Me too. Hello, my name is Sarah Chayo. Welcome to A Question of Law, a podcast created for law enthusiasts who want to increase their knowledge and deepen their understanding of the law. Our guests, legal professionals chosen from an array of legal proficiencies, will explain to us the fundamental principles of a specific topics in the areas of expertise. Then, they will educate us on new legal developments in their fields in the form of a recent case law or new legislation. They'll share with us their opinions on the ramifications of these latest advances. Finally, we'll talk about their career path and uncover some great insights about their lives and experiences. So, if you want to feed your curiosity, enrich your mind and get inspired. Take a break, sit back and remain tuned in. Welcome to the first episode of A Question of Law in 2021. I wish you all a happy, exciting and successful year. To begin this new chapter in a distinctive and original manner, we will start with a special edition. Today, we will be talking with Toby Catman, a barrister specialized in humanitarian law. Do you recognize the name? Yes, Toby was our guest in the last episode of 2020. We talked extensively about international criminal justice, its field of expertise. It's not necessary to have listened to that episode to understand this one, but I highly recommend it only because it's a fascinating edition. So Toby kindly accepted to come back on this podcast for a second time. Our regular listeners would probably have noticed that contrary to what we usually do, we did not talk about Toby's career the first time around. So we'll do just that in this edition. Toby will share with us precious insights about his profession, the unfolding of his career, the difficulties newly qualified barristers often face, and he will offer priceless advice for aspiring ones. But we will also discover the family man inside the gown and under the wig. He will talk about the people around him, particularly his wife and how she's inspired him in many ways. Let's start. Hello, Toby. Welcome again to A Question of Law. I'm delighted to have you back on this podcast. Thank you. I won't get into too many details to introduce you, firstly, because most of the information was given in the previous episode, and secondly, because I'd rather give you the opportunity to tell us who you are and what you do. Okay. That's always the hardest thing is to talk about myself and who I am and what I do. But So I'm a barrister and I specialize in international criminal and international human rights law primarily. I have my own chambers, which I co-founded with a colleague. I think it was in 2016, we established Guernica 37. And since that time, we have developed into a group that now has lawyers in the United Kingdom, in Europe, in the United States, uh, in South America. And, and we have work now that we deal with in about, uh, I think, at least 15 or 16 different countries. So that's what we do. I mean, we work with governments on developing national institutions. We work with victims on documenting crimes and taking them before national and international courts and tribunals. Mm -hmm. We do a great deal of pro bono work in representing people who 
find themselves in an unfamiliar country and unfamiliar legal system. And so we do our best to help them as much as we can. So I think what I would say is that I like to think, and I quite often say that I have the perfect job. <laughs> wow, that sounds amazing. Now, you also have a podcast, the Guernica Accountability Podcast. Could you tell us what it is about and why you've decided to create it? Absolutely. So it was primarily the, the brainchild of my, my partner, Almudena, who's a Spanish lawyer that is based in San Francisco. She comes from a slightly different background to me. She comes from much more of a, an NGO victim representation background, and I come from more of a, a prosecution background. Mm -hmm. But she, she thought it would be a good idea to talk about accountability in different parts of the world and what that means to different types of people. So our first introductory podcast was just the members of our group just speaking for 30 seconds, saying who they are, what they do, and what accountability means to them. And then from that, we then went into looking at the, the situation in, in Guatemala. Recently, we spoke about the Jesuit massacre trial from El Salvador, which was tried before the National Criminal Court in Madrid. I had the pleasure of interviewing the secret barrister, who is quite an extraordinary figure, who nobody really knows who he is, and I don't know who he is, or, or she. I interviewed them anonymously, and then we had an actor who gave the voice. And the last two podcasts that we've done, so the last one that was released was with Pablo de Greff, who's who's a former UN special rapporteur, and and I would say one of the the godfathers uh, of transitional justice. So it was we would interview him. Um, we did one on Syria previously, and just this week I, I interviewed uh, Michelle Jarvis, uh, who is the deputy head from the IIIM, the mechanism for Syria, speaking about gender crime and sexual violence in conflict, and then. The next podcast that we're doing next week will be my partner, Almudena, interviewing me. Mm -hmm. You're talking about the Triple IM. Could you define that a little more? Yeah. So the Triple IM is a mechanism, which is the international, independent, impartial mechanism for the Syrian Arab Republic. And so effectively what it is, is a body that was created by the United Nations General Assembly. Mm -hmm. And going back to what we were talking about in the first episode, where we talk about the International Criminal Court and its jurisdiction and how for Syria there is no jurisdiction at the ICC level. Mm -hmm. So because of the, the interference by Russia and China in the UN Security Council in providing any process of justice and accountability for Syria, the situation was put before the UN General Assembly, where no state has the power to veto. And they came up with this, this concept of creating an investigative commission that could document, could safeguard, and prepare files that could be used at the national level under universal jurisdiction, or could effectively be used to one day be a body of evidence for an international tribunal. And so it's a very important mechanism. It's the first of its kind. And I think it's important for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, I think it's in the current environment in which we live, it's the only institution that as its head and deputy head, two women. And I think that is particularly important 
And it's not just any women. The two women who head this institution are very seasoned professionals in international criminal justice and have developed a mechanism which puts victims at the centre, at the forefront of their work. And so I think that's incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So you have founded uh, your own practice, Guernica 37, and states organization or people can instruct you directly despite the fact that you are a barrister. So could you talk to us about the direct access mechanism? Yes, absolutely. I mean, first of all, what I would say is that Guernica is uh, much bigger than me and it's much bigger than any one individual. I think we, uh, we pride ourselves on being truly unique in our approach to everything that we do. And I'm incredibly fortunate to have an amazing team when I think about the entire team, whether they are other barristers, other lawyers, support staff, having Almudena as the best partner that I could hope for, having Carl, who I've worked with for longer than I care to admit, who's a friend of mine from university and a fellow barrister who also runs his chambers director. So we're incredibly fortunate to have an amazing team. And in terms of the direct access of the work, so for those of your listeners that understand the distinction between a solicitor and a barrister and how they operate under the English and Welsh legal system, I think a lot of the barriers that were previously in the system are not as rigid as they once were. So where barristers would only previously have been instructed by a professional client, namely a solicitor, there is a great deal more direct access with clients. So lay clients instructing a barrister directly. And so I'm I'm licensed by the English Bar Standards Board to take cases on through direct access. So clients instructing me directly. But I'm also uh, licensed to conduct litigation, which was previously regarded as the work of a solicitor. And so I think it has changed things quite significantly. But I also think that international practice is very different to deal with a matter domestically. And so much of the work that I've done over the the past 10, 15 years uh, internationally has always been through direct access, through direct contact with the lay client. And my clients might be a government, they might be an individual, they might be a corporation, they might be an NGO or an international organization. So the clients, I would say, differ from case to case. I don't have any one preference because the work dictates how we will provide legal services to to that particular client. And the other thing that I would say that um, I think make, makes us quite unique at Guernica is that we also have a non-profit side, which is closely associated with Chambers. So we have the the Guernica Centre for International Justice as well. So that enables us to do more development, foundation and non-profit work. Mm -hmm. That sounds amazing and extremely interesting. Now, when and how did you decide that you wanted to become a lawyer? Which route did you follow? And where does your passion for human rights come from? Well, I think I took a non-traditional route to becoming a lawyer. So I'm not one of those that, that watched the likes of uh, L.A. Law when I was growing up and decided I wanted to be a lawyer when I was 14 years old. 
I mean, I pursued different careers before I became a lawyer. Actually, what I always wanted to become was a photographer, which is what I did initially. <laughs> Um, (laughs) but I but I became a lawyer by chance Um, it wasn't necessarily a conscious decision but rather it was a series of events that forced me to to seriously consider what I wanted to do with the rest of my life Mm -hmm. but I think probably the I would say that there are a handful of people who gave me the strength and the direction to do what I do now Um, Probably the most important person in my life that's uh, enabled me to do this is my wife. And I think my wife, Sandra, is also the person that maybe gave me the the direction to do the particular type of law that I do. Because she's she's from Sarajevo in Bosnia. Mm -hmm. She lived through the siege of Sarajevo. Um, She lived through a war. And the first time that I went to meet her family and I saw in 1999, I saw the the remnants of the war that were still very, very visible. Even though the conflict had ended four years previously, you could still see the remains um, of the conflict. And I think that's one of the reasons why potentially I got involved with this area of work. But I can honestly say that I've been incredibly lucky I've been at the right place at the right time, and I've met some extraordinary people, including, as I've already mentioned, Carl and Almudena, that helped me do the kind of thing that I do, but also people like who I would consider to be one of my greatest uh, mentors in life, who is Joanna Corner, who's a judge, who is now the British candidate to be a judge at the International Criminal Court next year, So, which I really hope that she gets. So there have been a number of different people, I think, in my life that have enabled me to to shape my career in the way that it, it has become. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. And I hope she gets it. I looked at, at your CV recently and I noticed that there is a link with the Balkans. And I was wondering why you started your career in Bosnia. Now you've just explained that your wife is from Bosnia, so that's part of the answer. But could you Tell us more about the circumstances and the reasons why you started your career over there. Well, I actually met my wife before I went to Bosnia. So I, it's quite an interesting story, actually. Mm-hmm. So we were both living in the same town in Northampton. So this, uh, this was in 90, I guess, 97. And I'd just been fired from a restaurant, actually. I was a waiter in a restaurant. I'd just been fired from an Italian restaurant. I think it's the only job I've ever been fired from mm-hmm. in my life. But and so I I went to the Levi's jean shop to cheer myself up, <laughs> buy myself a pair of jeans. And I, I happened to walk past another Italian restaurant called uh, Sophia's. Um and they had a sign advertising for for staff. And so I went in and applied for a job and got it. And my wife happened to be working at the restaurant at that time. And so that's how I met my wife. I mean, how I managed her to convince her to marry me, I still don't know because I was I was one of the laziest waiters I think she ever met. We became close friends and then I fell in love with her. Uh, we got married and then I decided, well, we decided to go to Bosnia after we got married so that I could meet her family. And I think that's where it was either that winter or the following summer when we returned that I, I met a, a human rights lawyer a Bosnian human rights lawyer in Sarajevo. And I then, very soon after that, decided 
to move there to work. And so I took a job as a human rights lawyer, which initially was for a three or six months secondment. Um, but I ended up spending, I think, eight and a half years there. Mm-hmm. And you work for a prosecutor over there? Initially, I was working as a human rights lawyer in a human rights court. And then that first position was for about two years. And then an initiative to set up a national war crimes court, but with international support. And so I was one of the first internationals recruited into that process to to set that up. And initially, I was I was chosen to head the defense section, uh, which was quite a difficult thing to explain to my wife's family who had lived you know, who had all lived through through a war, yeah. um, that I was going to be working for the defence lawyers. Um, um, they didn't see my view of justice in that all sides should be properly represented. Mm-hmm. But eventually I, I moved to the prosecution and then became head of the prosecution section. That must have made your relationship with your in-laws easier. Now, what has been the most interesting case in your career and what has fascinated you so much about it? Wow. Um, I think every case that I do is fascinating and interesting. I'm very fortunate in that I tend not to to have any boring cases, and they all have their own individual challenges. Mm-hmm. And I think I would be hard-pressed to decide what would have been the most interesting case. I think one of the most challenging cases that I've ever had to work on was when I first came back to the UK to practice after being in Bosnia, I was hired to work on a case in Bangladesh. And I had to travel to Bangladesh to meet the clients. And that was a real challenge for me because for those that know me will know that I absolutely hate to fly. Oh my God. And, <laughs> um, which, which, is, which is a real problem for an international lawyer. So yes. I, I always used to joke. I always used to joke that you know my football team is Arsenal, and there was a very famous Arsenal footballer mm-hmm. who would never fly, and actually he never went to a world or European Championship in which he would have to fly, and so I became known as the Dennis Burkamp of international lawyers because I, I replied. <laughs> so I had to fly to uh, Bangladesh, and it was it was quite a quite a challenge, I have to say. I got used to it, and I now fly quite a lot, actually far too much, but. The case was challenging for many different reasons. So this related to the International Crimes Tribunal that was set up by the government to prosecute effectively their political opponents. I was instructed as part of a team to represent them, but I was the one that had to travel to Bangladesh the most frequently. And on one particular occasion, and I can remember I had just left my wife in in Croatia on holiday and it was the the 6th of August, 2011. I can remember it like it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. I said to her flippantly, um, one of these days they're going to arrest me. And so I flew out from Croatia. I had to take about four flights to get to Bangladesh. And lo and behold, I arrived at the airport and was uh, stopped by the immigration police and was effectively, although not told I was arrested, was placed under uh, effective arrest and held at the airport for about 10 hours until I was unceremoniously booted out of the country and told never to return. And if I did return, it was made very clear to me that I would be thrown in jail. And so... On which ground? On the ground that when I entered, I mean, the the immigration police, they had a, a huge dossier that had my name on the front 
and there, there were details of every every speech that I'd given because part of our defense was to argue that the the trials were politically motivated which they oh, okay. very clearly were mm-hmm. uh, and so I had been very critical of the government now you can do that kind of thing in our countries but you can't do that kind of thing in a country which is which is run by a dictator like uh, in Bangladesh and the you know the same dictator who has terrorized her country as far as I'm concerned is still in power. So you can't say that kind of thing. And so I was prevented from entering the country any further. And so I then had to represent my clients who were all being tried with capital cases. I mean, they all faced the death mm-hmm. penalty. And my representation for them subsequently became like Skype representation. I would communicate with the lawyers via Skype. That's how we were forced to operate. But one of the interesting things that the case created for me, and it's one of the things which has now become, I would say, a common practice of international cases, is the use of the media and communications. So because I recognized that I was not going to be able to enter the country and do the trials, and I wasn't going to be able to speak to the government because of the way that they would treat me, I had to develop a campaign which was lobbying, public advocacy, uh, and using the media to really show the world that this was not a legitimate judicial process, that this was a corrupt process that was aimed just to execute members of the political opposition. And that's what they did. They executed them one by one. Wow, that must have been difficult for you at the time. Now, to move on from this somber event... Could you tell us about the moment in your career that you felt the proudest to be a barrister? Well, um, that's a difficult one. I, I would say there are different times in my career where I felt incredibly proud. I think becoming a barrister, being called to the bar, which is a, an incredible moment, having my mum and dad with me, that was a very proud moment. I think. Setting up Guernica, the day that we actually launched Guernica, was a hugely proud moment for me. Mm, can you imagine? Mm-hmm. And, and I think recently, and I've spoken quite a bit about Syria because Syria is a very, very important part of my life. There are a couple of things that have happened in working on Syria that I'm particularly proud of. But I think recently at Guernica, we've started to work with the Dutch government on, on taking Syria to the International Court of Justice for breaches of the UN Torture Convention. And I think when when the Dutch government publicly announced that process, and it was a process in which we have been invited to assist the Dutch government, I think that was a particularly proud moment. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Now, what has been your most significant hurdle and how have you overcome it? I would say one of the difficulties in qualifying as a barrister, I don't think many people realize quite how difficult it is when you first start, how competitive a field it is, how much it costs, um, unless you have independent financial backing. It's very, very difficult. And I don't think people appreciate that when they first start. And I think when I graduated from my university and then did what was then called the bar vocational course, which is effectively bar finals, bar exams, 
And then I had my my call to the bar where I had my wig and gown. I, I thought, well, you know, the hardest work is done, so it's going to be easy now. Until I learned that getting pupillage and getting tenancy in chambers is incredibly difficult. And I don't think I'd appreciate quite how difficult that was going to be. Mm-hmm. The way that I got over that hurdle was to make myself a much more attractive candidate than I was just by graduating. And so that was, I would say, one of the reasons why I went to Bosnia was to gain experience so that I could come back. And the idea was just to be away for for 12, 18 months at the maximum. And then it was a little bit longer. But I didn't think that I would go away for eight and a half years. And then during that time, be appearing at the United Nations and various different fora discussing international criminal law. Mm-hmm. But when I came back to the UK in end of 2009, beginning of 2010, I then had my choice of which chambers I wanted to go to. And I chose Nine Bedford Row. Anyone who is very much the same as me, because the thing you have to understand is that the profession is very much geared towards white middle-class male um, that have had an average education. And I didn't fit that mold. So I had to do different things. And I think everybody who finds themselves now in wanting to to qualify as a barrister, but do not come from a traditional background, they have to work so much harder. And I think that's the same now as it was 20 years ago when I first graduated. Mm -hmm. But I would say, as cliched as it sounds, if you really want to succeed and you work hard, you will succeed. So possibly more difficult, but still possible. And you are the perfect example of that. So that's very encouraging. My next question is possibly more personal. How do you manage to find a balance between your work, your family life and your hobby, which, if I'm right, also has a very important place in your life? Um, I think it is incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to maintain a work-life balance. I think if you want to truly succeed, you have to recognize that there are certain things that you have to give up. I don't think that that's something that you have to give up forever. But I think you have to recognize that in the early stages of building up a new a new business or a chambers, that you have to work hard. And I think I can't expect the people who work with me to work 16 hours a day if I'm not prepared to do that myself. I'm also completely and utterly obsessed with my work. And I love my work. And so it doesn't always seem like work. But that does mean that I don't always spend as much time with my family as I should. And I have young daughters, and so I have to do that. Mm -hmm. I think the one thing that the pandemic has taught me is that I don't need to travel quite as much as I used to. Before the pandemic, I was traveling, I would say, on average, two weeks every month, where I would be in the United States, I would be in Colombia, I would be in Pakistan, I would be in Qatar, I'd be all over the place. Because I thought that was necessary for my work, and and I realized it's not. One of the great things about Guernica, I think, is that we have developed a system that is able to operate remotely. And I have to say that the pandemic has not affected Guernica because we had already started to work that way long before the pandemic started. But the other thing that I would say, what I have learned during the pandemic, as as my wife has told me, 
I've spent more time with my daughters during the pandemic than I have in their entire life. Right. They're only 11 and 12. And I think it has taught me to do things better. The other thing, as you have brought up my hobby, and I, I generally don't need any prompting to talk about Kung Fu. Uh, <laughs> most people will tell you. I'm sure of that. <laughs> Kung Fu has become as important as any other part of my life. Mm-hmm. I had spent a number of years uh, traveling, eating far too much rich food, drinking too much wine. And so I had sort of reached my mid-40s getting progressively fatter year by year and becoming increasingly more unhealthy. So I knew that I had to do something different. And my daughters had started Kung Fu and I was taking them to Kung Fu. And so my eldest daughter, uh, Molly, decided to push me into doing the kids adult class one day. And so I jumped into it and I did it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it nearly killed me. Um, (laughs) But I decided that that was what I wanted to do. I mean, growing up, when I was younger, I, I absolutely loved Kung Fu. And I was never able to find anyone that taught Kung Fu where I grew up. And so I did a, a different martial art uh, called Kuk Sul Wong, which is a Korean martial art. Okay. Mm-hmm. But when I was given the opportunity to, to learn Kung Fu, I just leapt at the chance. And so I, I got teacher to teach me privately for a couple of weeks until I could get confidence and at least some physical ability to move for more than 20 minutes. And ever since then, it is an incredible part of my life. I organize my meetings so as not to interfere with Thursday nights and Sunday mornings because that's Kung Fu time. (laughs) And if I travel, I take my Kung Fu things with me and I train when I'm traveling. I'm truly grateful for particularly my Sifu, Sifu Jerome de Silva, who has taught me how important Kung Fu is in my life. And so for that reason, it's not a hobby, and I will never refer to it as a hobby. It's so it's a philosophy it's, of life? Yeah, it is part of my life. And I hope to take my brown belt in February, So, and then, and then I have to go through the pain and suffering of preparing for a black belt within the next two years. Wow. <laughs> right. Well, I wish you good luck with that. And and it's actually quite interesting that it's uh, something that you do as a family. And my wife too. Oh, your wife too. All right. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. So uh, my daughter and I managed to convince my wife to, to join as well. So, uh, and she she's doing incredibly well. She's got so much more natural ability than I have. <laughs> it sounds like a fantastic things to do. Have you got a last piece of advice that you'd like to give aspiring lawyers listening to this podcast? I think I would give the advice that I would always give people is don't be deterred by the obstacles that are that are placed in front of you. There will be many obstacles placed in front of you and you may not come from the right background. But I I think one of the things that I that I always say is that you've got to make yourself into being the most attractive candidate. That means getting experience, but also identifying what it is you want to do. Mm -hmm. I've interviewed, I don't know how many, um, probably about 200 candidates over the years for pupillage, but also when I was in Bosnia for, for junior lawyers. And I think one of the things that I would always say is it's important to ensure that you shine through in the interview 
not someone you think the interviewer wants you to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very easy to be someone else for 15 minutes. It's very difficult to be someone else for 12 months. Um, and so when you're looking at pupillage in particular, if you don't like the people interviewing you and if they don't like you, then you're not going to fit in there. So it is important to remain who you are. Mm. You've got to be very determined to succeed and you've got to recognize it is incredibly difficult but it is incredibly worthwhile as i always say being a barrister is the best profession and you know every day i'm filled with immense pride doing what i do but you have to work incredibly hard at it and you have to recognize that there are a lot of things that you will have to give up along the way mm-hmm. i say that because it's now probably harder than it's ever been to succeed because of the the cuts in legal aid, the fact that you have rather irresponsible statements by our Home Secretary about activist lawyers. It does make it very, very difficult to to work in such an environment, but it is very much worth it. Mm -hmm. Very positive advice. Thank you very much. Would you like to share your contact details? Sure. I look, I'm more than happy for people to contact me by our Chambers website, which is uh, www.guernica37.com. By email. My email address is tobyc at guernica37.com. You can also send me direct messages through my Twitter, which is just at Toby Cadman. And I'm more than happy for people to do either. Right. Toby, thank you so much for giving up your time to be with us again today. You really have provided us with a great understanding of the life of an international criminal law barrister. It's been fantastic to have you on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of A Question of Law. Your engagement with the show is at the heart of its success. The show has already received a fantastic amount of support and I'm really thankful for this. But the challenge is to keep you, the audience, engaged and fascinated. So if you have appreciated the show, please let me know by tuning in for the next one, rating and sharing the episodes and leaving comments. So until the next question of law, keep well.